guys. This is Pause and Ponder with Susie Weber. Do you have a best friend? I do. And even though I don't get to see her very often, no matter what, we pick up like we haven't missed a day. And we both know we would drop everything to be there for each other if ever needed. Instead of stories of my kids, today I'm going to tell you a little bit about my best friend, Jan. And yes, it all leads to something I was pausing to ponder just today. So, I hope you'll keep listening. So, Jan and I became best friends in fourth grade. So, we've been friends a really long time, and we have had some pretty crazy adventures. Let me just tell you about a few of them. When we were in probably fourth or fifth grade, we were still pretty little. We were exploring in her neighborhood and, uh, you know, fooling around, doing whatever. And there was this creek behind this uh, one person's house. And we were wandering around back there and we found what we thought, I think we thought it was a gerbil or a hamster, something like that. And we were like, oh, look, this can be our pet. So we ran back to her house and got like a little container. And then we ran back to the creek and actually found this little critter again and got it into the container and brought it home to make it her new pet. I wasn't super into it because I'm really not like a rodent person and this, but this story might be why. So maybe I was until this actually happened. But anyway, so we get back to her house and I remember distinctly, we came up on the front porch and her oldest brother, Tom, was coming out the door, I guess, standing on the porch. And he was like, girls, what are you doing? Now he was like in college. So to me, he was like a grown up. And I don't think I'd ever even met Tom before at this moment because he'd been away at school. And we were like, oh, we found a gerbil. Look, isn't it so cute? And we show him in the container and he's like, that is a rat. Take it back. Don't touch it. Take it back. Leave it at the creek. And I was horrified. I hate rats. I was like, I wanted to throw up. I was like, this is disgusting. So needless to say, that was the end of our pet gerbil. We took him back to the creek. A few years later, when we were preteens, I remember thinking we were probably like 12 or 13, probably 13, and just so bored. There was no, you know, no internet. We didn't even, at that point, we didn't even have a VCR and videos. So there was never anything to do. We were always so bored. And we wanted to, you know, be teenagers, but we weren't. So this one time, we cooked up this plan that my brothers, I have two older brothers, they were going to a party. And so we decided that Jan and our other best friend, Liza, would get in the trunk of the car and sneak to the party. Because uh, the guys had a Mustang and um, the back seats came out, you could like push them out. So if they were in the trunk, they could push the seats out and get out of the car. So (laughs) that's what they did. And I was to stay, I didn't get to go. I had the boring job of staying at my house and being the cover of, you know, we're not doing anything really, mom and dad. So they did. They went in the trunk of the car to the party. And I just sat at home wondering what had happened. And then Um, I just waited and waited. And of course, no one had cell phones. There's none of this stuff. You know, this is like the olden days. And um, anyway, eventually, an hour later or something, they came home. And I was like, what happened? What happened? Well, they had gone to the party. They'd gotten to the house and they got out of the car. It all went perfectly well. But then they were too nervous to go into this party of all these teenagers. So they just walked all the way back to my house. 
So it's kind of a fail. <laughs> and then a few years after that, when we could drive, we were having a sleepover as always, you know, her house or my house. This time it was at my house. And it had to be like 1030 at night. It must have been in high school, maybe 17 or something. Anyway, we're sitting around at my house and we're like, you know what? We should go to the shore. Yeah, let's go to the shore. In fact, Jan's boyfriend was at the shore and she wanted to see what he was up to. So we decide to go. She's like, well, I don't know how to get there. I was like, and I don't know why I said this, but I was like, oh, I know. I'll, I'll figure it out. Now, why I thought I could figure it out was because I'd been on the turnpike before and I'd seen signs for New Jersey. So I was like, oh, yeah, I've seen signs for New Jersey. We'll find it. That was it. That was all I knew. No GPS, not even a map. We just get in the car and start driving. Yep. And you know what? It probably would have worked out okay. Like, I think we actually would have seen signs for it if we'd been paying attention. But when we got in the car, we just started chatting away and not really paying attention to where we were going. And I guess I just went into autopilot of I'd driven to Canada so many times because I'm Canadian and we have a cottage in Canada that I just started driving to Canada, which is not the way to go to get to the shore. Well, we didn't really notice until we'd been driving for at least three hours, maybe four hours. And we we're like, hey, wait a second. You know what? what? Where's the shore? And we're like, oh, shoot. We haven't been paying attention. It was literally like three hours into the trip. By the way, it's about an hour and a half to maximum two hours to get to the shore from my house. So now it's two in the morning and we're driving along some highway. And like, I have no idea. I, I have no idea where the shore is from here. So we turn around, we get to a toll booth, and, and uh, we had been on the Northeast Extension, not the way to the Jersey Shore. And we ask the toll booth lady, hey, do you know how to get to the Jersey Shore? <laughs> she looks at us like we are crazy. And she's like, you're in New York. <laughs> well, anyway, long story short, we did finally make it to the shore at about six in the morning and we just drove around, didn't know where the boyfriend was, didn't know anything, just drove around and then ended up going home. So it was, it was quite the night and pretty typical adventure for Jan and I. But I mean, anyone that you can release a rat into the wild with, hide in the trunk of a car and just drive aimlessly all night with, I mean, that's gotta be a best friend, right? I love you, Janny, and I hope that everybody listening will think about who in their life has been a best friend to them and maybe, you know, send them a text and tell them how much they mean to you. So why am I telling you all this? Well, more recently, like a few months ago, Jan asked me to join her for a book club that she's part of. So that's going to happen pretty soon. And it was in pondering... Um, some things from the book that they're doing that uh, that I wanted to share with you today. So the book that they read and that I read is called The Insanity of God, A True Story of Faith Resurrect, and it's by Nick Ripkin. So this is a book, I highly recommend it by the way, um, about a guy, it's a, a pseudonym that he uses because he doesn't want to use his real name, um, but he went around and interviewed a bunch of people all over the world um, who have lived in places where Christians are persecuted and gathered these stories and learned from believers today. Like this was written, I think it's 2013. 
And so it's it's current day people who have been persecuted for their faith and just just heard their stories. Pretty cool. And so in this book, I was thinking about how it tells the story of a guy named Dmitri who was in jail in the former Soviet Union um, for his faith. And Dmitri had what he called a heart song. And he sang it every morning, even if people made fun of him, even if he would be beaten for doing it, he would sing, he would wake up and sing loudly his heart song. And he attributed this heart song and worship in general, along with writing down or reciting scripture, as the two things that prepared him and sustained him in persecution. Now, listen to that. This is what we're getting closer to what I want to pause and ponder today. What sustained him and also prepared him for persecution. And I really think it's true of any kind of trial that this heart song can prepare you and sustain you through a trial. So I was driving in the car today and I was thinking about this cool heart song idea. Do you have a heart song? It doesn't have to be a song you wrote yourself. It's just any worship song that joins your heart to Jesus. It's probably a good idea to pick one that the words are easy to remember. But I think it would be really cool to have a heart song. And so now I'll finally get to my uh, spiritual point of the day. So here I was driving in the car thinking about these things and I thought, I wonder if Jesus had a heart song. A special song. Can we model this idea of a heart song after Jesus' example? And at first I was like, oh darn, there's no verse about Jesus singing. I mean, I'm sure he sang lots of times, but there's no verse about it. And I was like, oh, wait a second. Yes, there is. They sang the Psalms of Ascent on their way to the Mount of Olives. <clears throat> the Psalms of Ascent are Psalms 120 to 134. And then I was like, wait, did I just make that up? Because I know I've heard pastors say it, and but maybe they just assume it because all good Jews sang these psalms on their way to Jerusalem before Passover. So maybe it's just an assumption. And I don't want to build up this whole idea of Jesus singing on an assumption. So then I had to wait till I got home and pull up my Bible and look. And sure enough, it does say he sang a psalm. It's in Matthew and Mark. There's no record of it in um, Luke and John. But in Matthew and Mark... It does say, here, I'll read you the verse. It does say, after they have the Lord's Supper, it says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And the same thing in Mark. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So it was in Matthew 26 and in Mark uh, Mark 14. So there you go. So I... Then I started looking at those two passages a little more closely and pondering them. And I realized, of course, Jesus was like having the biggest trial of his life. He's on his way to the Mount of Olives where he's going to pray and then be arrested while there. So it's all about to go down and he knows it. But also the disciples were sorrowful. In both of those accounts, it says of the disciples, and they were very sorrowful. Um, they were feeling sorrowful because Jesus had said one of them was going to betray him, and they weren't even sure who it would be. So now I'm noticing that in this scene, when Jesus and the disciples are most the most sorrowful, 
the most tempted to quit, possibly, by the, by the disciples, the most discouraged, maybe even the most frightened or unsure of what would happen, as far as the disciples are concerned. What did they do? What did they do in these kinds of circumstances? They ate a meal together, the Passover, which has a ton of meaning, but we're just going to go with the basics here. They ate a meal together. They sang together. The disciples stayed with him, and he asked them to pray. They ate a meal. They sang. They stayed with him. And if they had stayed awake, they would have prayed with him. The staying with him. I know Wes calls that the ministry of presence in a crisis. Wes, I don't know if you know this, Wes, my husband, is a crisis chaplain. And that is often what he feels his role is, is the ministry of presence, just being there. There's so many things you can say in a crisis that are not helpful. And just being there can be super helpful. A meal, a song, a friend, and a prayer. These are the things we need in crisis. And this is what we can do when someone else is in crisis. Just imagine Jesus and the disciples going from, you know, the upper room where they celebrated the Passover meal and walking down the street through the town and out of the city to the Mount of Olives. It's like a garden. And as they're going, they're singing these songs. Just imagine the heaviness of heart of Jesus knowing what's coming and the heaviness of heart and the the unknown for the disciples you know they were always trying to figure out what was going on but at least they were still there with him I'm not going to read you all the songs of ascent I wonder how many they sang it was traditional to sing these psalms um, on your way into Jerusalem so perhaps they'd sung them a few days before that too but whichever case, I'll just read you this this little part from Psalm 123, which whether Jesus sang it that night on his way to the Mount of Olives or perhaps a few days before, but still thinking about what was coming. I'll read you this from Psalm 123 and maybe think of Jesus singing these words to the Lord, knowing what was coming, and how we could sing these words to the Lord in our times of trial which are, of course, less significant, but as heartfelt for us. Here they are. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. And it goes on from there. So, now you know the value of a heart song. Are you starting your day with your heart song on your lips? I hope that remembering Jesus turning to song in his desperate hour will encourage you to choose your own heart song and that it will bring you sweet times of private worship of our Savior. Till next time.